would be my focus, I probably wouldn't feel at home. But if Jesus Christ is the center of our lives, we've got something in common. Not all of us have an interest in this type of work or that type of work. Or, and so we have to find, you know, we have to just find some kind of uh, common ground. But if we have Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and that's the one that we are, get excited about, and that's the one we like to talk about, then we've got common ground. Amen. Amen. I appreciated that. Thank you very much for that challenge. <clears throat> As Brother Elvin said, our theme for the week is a healthy community of believers. Last evening we considered the drone syndrome. It's important, you know, the, what the drone does in the hive is important, but much of their life becomes a liability. Each one of you are important. Each one of you have an important place to play in life. But, are you a liability? Or are you one of those who are sold out for the kingdom? I think I said last evening that, did I say they kill off the drones? Actually, the way they actually do it, from what I understand, is they push them out of the hive and they let them starve to death. Just get them out of here. So if we're going to build on community, if we're going to build on oneness, we must be born again. We must be walking in the Spirit. We need to be walking in sanctification. And so everything that I say this week needs to start there. The new birth, walking in the Spirit. Well, I have a bit of a treat for you tonight as we think of the bees. Uh, there's a word that I'd like to introduce to you tonight. Probably a word that you haven't seen before, but it uh, describes a certain behavior of the bees, trophallaxis. And uh, what we want to consider again is that there's, you know, the queen, the worker, and the drone. <clears throat> now the worker, once a worker is hatched out, it goes through a number of cycles, which is so unique. Uh, when the worker is hatched out, the first thing it begins to do is begin to clean itself. That's its first thing it does. As soon as it's done, its first job is to start cleaning the cells. Because a queen will not lay in a cell that has not been cleaned and polished. And so we need a set of working bees to clean and polish. That's its first job. And so it does that job for a period of time, then it moves on to the next job. And I thought it's interesting, it starts with the lowliest job. If we're not faithful in that which is least, God said He won't give us more. And so, bees, have, there's just so many lessons with the bees. So they start with cleaning and polishing the cells, getting them ready for the queen to come and lay eggs in them. After a bit, after the cleaning of cells, the next, what happens is, the, there's a gland called the mandibular gland that begins to mature. And that's how the bee knows that it's ready for its next job. And that gland starts producing what many of you might know is called royal jelly. That royal jelly is fed to certain, uh, to larva and also to the queen. It's a, it's a secretion. It's a gland. And that's its next job. 
So then as that gland slowly weans off, it moves to the next job. And the next job is the, there's eight wax glands in a bee, in a worker bee that starts producing wax. So as the mandibular gland slows down, these wax glands kick into gear and so it finds its next job and that is creating all the wax that's a part of the whole hive. Eventually that gland also stops producing. So then it moves on to its next job. And the next job, the behavior of the next job is what that word relates to, trephalaxis. And that is that, that uh, there's four foraging bees. Them are the bees that go out. That's the last job. That's the, that's the, the uh, top of the ladder. This word is the second. And that's where when the foraging bees, they go out and get the nectar and they come back in. The bee that is in the hive then takes the nectar from the foraging bee and carries that in and deposits it wherever. So that bee never comes in and actually deposits it. There's always someone waiting at the door to take the nectar and to carry it away. I mean, such a beautiful working together. It's just amazing. So what happens is these bees... It's called trophallaxis. That's the behavior. They stand at the doorway and they see a foraging bee come and he's loaded down with nectar. And so as soon as that bee starts crawling in, they go over and they touch the other bee's antennas like this. At the same time, sticking their mouth up as if begging for the nectar. And so when the bee does it, then the other bee, the foraging bee, regurgitates the nectar and the Worker bee in the hive takes that and goes and deposits it where it belongs. And I just thought that, that uh, connection, that transmission is so unique as they share responsibility, share the care, um, and just um, relate together in, in that way. The behavior is called trophallaxis. So I enjoy the unique behavior of the honeybee. The close interaction, the give and take that we see, the submission of one bee to the other, the helping of one another, and the working together for one common cause. It's so beautiful, it puts all of us human beings to shame. It puts us all to shame. So are we able to take the behavior of the honeybee and be encouraged in our interaction? Definitely. The apparent harmonious and well-organized colonies of thousands of individual bees. It's the ultimate of socialist life with complete selflessness and redistribution of income or everything they have. It is a phenomenon, phenomenon that has astounded individuals for many generations. And so I believe that the honeybee probably does better in interacting than what we as human beings do. But this to this truffle axis, this two working together and, and the bee coming and begging for that and the connection that they have, the submission to one another is tremendous. I'd like to just consider for a moment two gentlemen in the Bible going to 1 Samuel 18. 1 Samuel 18, this is David and Jonathan. just want to see the affection that they had for one another and consider a few things here. 
1 Samuel 18. Just reading the first four verses. It says there, And it came to pass, when he had made an end of speaking, that's David, when David made an end of speaking unto Saul, it says that the soul of Jonathan was knit with the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would let him go no more home to his father's house. Then Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was upon him, gave it to David and his garments, even his, to his sword and to his bow and to his girdle. This first verse, it says, And it came to pass when he had made an end of speaking unto Saul, that the soul of Jonathan was knit with the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And I had to wonder, now what was David's interaction with Saul? David was speaking with Saul. And there was something about that interaction that at the end of that conversation, that all of a sudden, Jonathan's heart was knit to David's. And he loved him as he loved himself. He loved him as his very own soul. What happened in the interchange between David and Saul? Something happened there that made Jonathan just really become affectionate, brotherly love towards David. To a point that he took off all of his kingly, uh, all of his kingly robes and all of those things and gave them to David. But what happened there? I thought it was interesting just to consider a bit. We know that David had just killed Goliath and that uh, King Saul wanted to know who this boy was. And so Abner, the captain of the host of Saul's men, of Saul's army, brought David in. And of course, Saul began to inquire of who he is. And something about the way that David related to Saul did something to bring together, to unite, to cause Jonathan to love David as his own soul. Something. And I can only imagine what that might have been. I would suspect that as David was speaking to Saul, I mean, he just did this grand and wonderful thing he could have been so proud of. I imagine he was one of the most humble men. And you know, humility really does draw us together. Somebody who is very humble is attractive. And I think there was something attractive about it. I believe, and I'm just again supposing, that as David related to Saul, that I believe that you would have saw a lot of respect for authority. Because we know, as life went on, David was very, very conscious of that. And there was something about maybe the way he spoke, the way he handled himself, the way he expressed himself, really brought them together in unity. And oneness. The modesty, the piety, and courage of David were so congenial to the character of Jonathan that they attracted his most cordial esteem and affection, so that the most intimate friendship subsisted between them from that time, and they loved each other with pure hearts fervently. Talk about attractive. Friendship is an entire sameness and one soul. A friend is another self. I'm just really challenged as I consider this beautiful relationship, and it's quite rare. And so I'm challenged a bit to look at my own life and consider what would hinder 
good relationships in my life. I want that kind of a relationship with those that are definitely I'm the closest to. There's another uh, account given in 2 Samuel in chapter 2. This was after Saul and Jonathan were dead. After Saul and Jonathan were dead, of course, David, he assumed that now he's the king. He had been already anointed. And so he got his, his men, the men of Judah, and they stood with him. He had Joab as his uh, captain of his host of the army. But Abner, who was the captain of Saul's army, wasn't done. And so he took Saul's son Ishbosheth and he anointed him. And so now we had two kings, as it were. And of course, that gave a big fight between Abner and Saul's men, between Joab and David's men. There became this big fight. And uh, at one point, Abner said, oh, come on, let's just pick a few men from your side. I'll pick a few men from my, my side. We're going to have a duel. And normally they did that and they fought it out and whoever won, the war was over. Well, not in this case. They had a battle out and at the end of it, the war kept going just as it had before. They were brutal. They were mean. They were out to somehow get on top of each other. And so, I think Joab and his... Um, Joab and his men, David's side, it was definitely the winning side. And as time went on, they grew stronger and Abner and his men grew weaker. But I'd like to turn now to 2 Samuel 2 and just look at a verse as we think of relationships. <clears throat> and Abner here, which Abner should have been ashamed of himself. He's the one who sort of started this whole thing. He's the one that asked for the duel. But at the same time, he says something really profound in 2 Samuel chapter 2 and verse 26. Somewhere along the line, they were being chased. Abner and his men were being chased. They got up on the other hill and they stood and they shouted back to Joab and his men. And this is what Abner said. Then Abner called to Joab and said, Shall the sword devour forever? Knowest thou not that it will be bitterness in the latter end? How long shall it be then, O oh, ere thou bid the people return from following their brethren? He said something fairly profound. He simply said, if we keep on fighting, it's going to really be ugly. There's a lot of people going to get hurt. And you know, in relationships today, I don't think we understand that. I don't think we understand that. You know, we have churches. I just heard... So family started coming to our congregation about a year ago. They came from a very dysfunctional church. It was really bad shape. And three of their youth gave testimonies for membership. And every one of them shared how in the middle of all those church struggles, they just simply lost out spiritually. We know. We hear it all the time. This is what happens when church struggle. We know it. And yet, somehow, we don't comprehend what this vicious, cruel man, Abner, actually comprehended. He said, if we keep on going like this, it's going to really be ugly. Isn't it time to stop chasing? Well, anyhow, I don't think it ended there, but, but it is interesting how God stepped in. And uh, for some reason or other, Abner was accused of, of immorality. And he was like, What? You accuse me of this, some of his own men. He said, you're making me out to be a dog. And so he turned 
away from it and went and gave his loyalty to David. Today, I'd like to talk about relationships. And as we consider that the harmony that can be had in relationships, and as we consider the casualties of bad relationships, there's an ingredient in relationships that I'd like to speak on this evening, and that little word is trust. Trust is needed, and where trust is lost, it lays the seedbed for many, many a casualty. So if you would allow me to, I am not your pastor, but I'm going to put on my pastor's hat this evening and just give some real practical teaching if you would allow me to do that. So the title this evening is Maintaining Trust in Relationships. As we know, trust was more or less much more a part of our general society years ago in America. Here in America, in years gone by, just not that long ago, trust was such a part of the fabric that you could actually do big business transactions on a handshake. It was just a handshake. There's many uh, of our older men that would probably give you testimony of some very high dollar value transactions that were taking place just simply on a handshake. It was because they trusted each other. They knew that their word was good. They knew there was respect and honor there. And they could um, give that kind of trust. Much more trust was given in verbal agreements. There was a lot less lock and key. It was not so much a part of our society in the past. I believe Brother Elvin just told me that in the last while, churches here being locked because of thieves. Years ago, that wasn't an issue. Churches never got locked. We lock our church too. You know, honest system, the honest system, the honest system, roadside stands, that's becoming a thing of the past. One time you always had the money there in an open box. People put the cash in. They took any uh, needed cash out of it that they, you know, to make up the difference of what they put in. But that's becoming a thing of the past. Actually, we have a, we sell raw milk and so we have a, refrigerator and people come help themselves and we had for a long time we had the honest system until finally I figure out there's money that's getting lakes and it's walking away and uh, we happened to we happened to catch the fellow red-handed then anyhow so today we have a lock on it and it's a shame because it's such a bad testimony to so many people I had a we had a fella coming from New Jersey to buy milk from us. He's from the city down there. And, and uh, he was surprised. He used to bring people along just to show them the honest system. He says, I can't believe it. You'd never do that in New Jersey. He said, they wouldn't only take the milk. They'd take the refrigerator, the money and everything in New Jersey. What a shame. What a shameful testimony. Trust is so broken. Years ago, the homeless walked the road. They would come into the farm and they would ask for some work so they could have some food and they would sleep in the barn at night. That was a common thing. Today, you're really not even allowed to pitch up, pick up hitchhikers. It's actually illegal. You're not supposed to be being... If you pick up a hitchhiker and you get something happens to you, 
They're not, you weren't supposed to pick up a hitchhiker. I'm not saying that you don't, but you're really not supposed to do. Thing of the past. The security systems that we have to go through to get into our government offices and airports. It's a maze of navigation. The world in general is becoming more unsafe all the time. I tried, uh, I had a, years ago I had a tractor advertised in our local farming paper and when you advertise it in there, they automatically put it on the internet. And uh, one day, and they put my email address with, one day I got this email from a man from Thailand. He wanted to buy my tractor. And I was like, really? This is something. And so, we interacted a little bit and he told me how he wants to do the transaction and he was going to send me twice as much money as what the tractor was worth and then I was supposed to pass half of it on to the fella that was going to ship it over there. And of course, I was kind of naive, so I didn't know a whole lot, but I just, I just knew that I need to be a little bit careful and so I kind of drug my feet Well, then he gave me a big sob story how his wife just passed away and this, that, and the other thing. And then I really became, you know, started questioning his character. So I went to my bank and I said, his fellow's planning to give me a cashier's check. Are cashier checks safe? My banker didn't say a word. He walked over. He got a whole portfolio. He got a portfolio out. He started flipping through it so I could see cashier check after cashier check, page after page. And he said, you know what? The biggest... Uh, the, the business that gets the most cashier checks that are bad, the dog business. So I knew it wasn't safe. So I email, uh, emailed him back and said that the tractor will stay on my property until that check makes the whole circle. And we know we got the money and everything is taken care of. You know, I never heard of anything, I never heard anything out of him since. I wouldn't be surprised if it was my next door neighbor. Who knows? But as much as it's out there, in the church, trust should be alive and well. It should be alive and well. It should be as alive and well as ever. But as so many other, other things, I'm afraid the church is following the heels of the world. So we want to talk about trust. First thing we want to consider when we think of trust and the need of trust. Everyone is going to need to commit to complete transparency and honesty. Complete transparency and honesty. Trust is built on what you see is what you get. In, no, in other words, no surprises. As soon as, and you can probably verify to this, you're talking to somebody, you're questioning them out, and as soon as you hear that they're trying to dodge your question, all of a sudden, a shadow passes over their life. You can just tell they're trying to wiggle around. They're not telling you the altogether honest, or they don't want to be altogether honest, and a shadow starts crossing across their life. The Apostle Paul had a very high commitment to transparency and honesty. 2 Corinthians 4.2, he says, but have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty. He didn't just say, I'm not going to do them. He renounced them. I want nothing to do with it. I'm going to live in the open and the clear. My life is going to be an open book before everyone. 
But I've renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness. Just that kind of sly. You just can't quite get your fingers on it. They're just kind of slipping here, slipping there. And you ask them the question this way, and they'll come over this way. And you just can't. Paul said, no craftiness. Nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. I'm going to be, my life is an open book to everybody I meet. My conscience is clear before man, before God. What a tremendous commitment to transparency and honesty. We all need to make that commitment. But as soon as we start sleeking and slivering about in the shadows, well, the young man says, to his parents, why don't you trust me? Well, of course I can't trust you because you've proven you're not to be trusted because you have done things behind my back. Really? We need a commitment to complete transparency and honesty if trust is going to be alive and well. A person who lies cannot be trusted. We need to commit to being truthful even if it costs us. Even if it costs us. Because the cost of lying will only be so much greater in the end. I've done it. I've done it myself. You know, first, you don't really, you don't really want to give away that truth. And so, you kind of dodge the question a little bit. You're not lying. You're just not answering. Don't even start down that road because you will end up lying. Because you're going to need to cover your tracks, cover your tracks, cover your tracks and end up being pushed in a corner and giving an outright lie. Truth, uh, trust is built on transparency and honesty. A person, and I know a few, who lie cannot be trusted. We had a gentleman, an older gentleman who lived in our community. He was homeless. And so we hadn't known him pretty well. We trusted the man. He was a little older. And so we brought him in his home. But one of his problems was he lied. And he lied everywhere he went. And so when he come, he stepped in the door. I said, we're going to make an agreement before you go one step farther. He's standing right inside the, the kitchen door. I said, we're going to make an agreement. Our agreement is we're going to commit to honesty. We're not going to lie. We're going to be above board. Nothing hidden. And he agreed, and that was his first lie. Because he went on to live a lie. There are some people who are actually addicted to it. Can't be trusted at all. Yes, I'll do it. I remember being in the courtroom. I was there as a witness to an accident. I knew how the accident happened. I was there. I saw it all. And the gentleman, the other gentleman was accusing my friend of... uh, Causing the accident. So this gentleman gets into the stand and he's asked to put his left hand on the Bible, raise his right hand, say the truth, nothing but the truth. And he went on to lie the whole way through. Now it's sad when it's out there, but it's much more sad when it's in the church. If we're going to have a strong community spirit among us, every one of us 
And I mean all of us will have to commit to a very high standard of transparency and honesty. I would like to say that I want to be the first one to commit to that high commitment, high standard of transparency and honesty. I would like to take you, I actually invite you into every room of my life. You're welcome. I have nothing to hide. I have nothing to hide. You can even dig in the closets. I have committed to living a completely honest and transparent life. What you see is what you get. You know, we want to build trust. That's where where we're going to need to go. There are some things, sometimes, that I could do, and I personally would have no problem with them. But I know there would be brothers in my congregation that would have a difficulty with it. I have chosen not to cross that line. I want to be completely honest and above board. Down in Haiti, some of you have probably been there already, I like to walk through their open air markets. And of course, they have a pile of corn here. They have a pile of rice there. They have a pile of this and that. And they also have a pile of flour on a blanket. And of course, you take your container and you bring it there. They set their contain- that, your container right in the middle of the flour. And then they proceed to take the flour like this and go way above the can and go like this. And they'll do it until it's running over. Then they do it a few more times yet. And it looks so innocent. But you know, it's not very innocent. You know when they bring it way up like this and let it float, a lot of air goes into it? And you don't get near as much flour than if they shake the can and pack it down and and just be very careful they don't get air into it. So they know what they're doing, but it's not honesty. Are we committed to complete honesty and transparency? When I was a young man of about 18 years old. I was with the youth and my car that I normally drove was in the shop. And so I was like, well, how do I go? And I decided, you know, it would be pretty fun to take my dad's old station wagon and go to the youth gathering. That'll, that'll attract attention. And so I took it and I didn't more than drive into the place where the youth gathering was and the next thing I know, the car was full, as full as you could make it, of young boys. And they were egging me to go for a drive. And so I did. And I did what I knew I shouldn't do. And I went out the field lane, back through the mud, and uh, came back. We had a lot of fun, and I parked it. I felt a little bad about it, but, oh well. Dad'll never know. I'll wash the car before I get home. Anyhow, afterwards... Okay, when we were done there, I took the key. I went in. I went in to sing with the rest of the youth. Afterwards, I came, came out, jumped in the car. I'm like, I didn't know I made it this muddy. It was so muddy. It was terribly muddy. I mean, there was mud in the door. There was mud inside the door. There was mud on the seats. I mean, this thing was so muddy. I felt terrible. Of course, there's no way I'm going to hide it. So I didn't even wash it. I just took it home. When Dad said it, saw it, he was rightfully so upset. What could I say? I took it in the mud. 
But I couldn't believe that I actually did it. That bad. Well, it wasn't until months later till one of my friends said, was that car pretty muddy? I was like, yeah, what happened? He said, we found a key in the ashtray. And they took it out. They had it stuck. They had the doors open trying to push it and the mud was flying in the car. It was a mess. But you see what happened there? Because I wasn't completely honest. Because I wasn't completely above board. Because I did what I knew I shouldn't. If I would have been totally above board, I would have parked it, I wouldn't have used it in a way I shouldn't have, I could have said to my dad, I didn't do it. It wasn't me. I don't know how it happened, but I didn't do it. You know, we, this cloud passes over our life when we start playing around. In the shadows, a cl- cloud passes over our lives. Trust is earned. <clears throat> Trust is earned. It's earned by being trustworthy. That's how it's earned. Well, why don't you believe me? You ought to believe me. It's your Christian duty to believe me. I'll believe you. But you need to be trustworthy. You can't tell me a lie and then ask me two days later to trust you. Now, on the other end, I think in a congregation of believers, I think sometimes we need to extend trust even when it might be questioned. We need to extend that trust. But, trust is earned. We need to remember that. Another thing as we think of trust is we need to prove to others that we're living for the best of every individual. I'm here for your best, Brother Larry. I'm here for your best, Brother Elvin. And I should live in such a way that that is a proof that I can even come to you and I can actually reprimand you. And you'll say, thank you, because you know I'm there for your good. It should be a known thing that when you speak into my life, that you're doing it because you love me. Oh, the way that can build trust. We need to live such a life that people know life is not about me. It's about you. I'm here for you. I want to see you prosper. I want to see you get ahead. I will sacrifice to see that that happens. Romans 15, 1 and 2 says, We then are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let every one of us please his neighbor. Please his neighbor for his good to edification. That should be the goal. You do not have to perform. You do not have to be someone you are not. I accept you as you. I accept you as you. Even as God, God accepts us right the way we are. Now, He loves us too much to let us there, but He loves us right the way we are. And so it is for us. And people need to be affirmed. I love you. I appreciate you. I love you and appreciate you too much to let you the way you are, but I love you and I care about you. True, genuine love crosses every cultural burial. It is colorblind and it is all-inclusive. There shouldn't be any cliques in the church. There shouldn't be. There should be no cliques. Now, the truth of the matter is, at Harmony Christian Fellowship, there's some that I am closer to than some others. 
But I do not exclude anybody in my sphere of acceptance and love and appreciation and blessing. It's all inclusive. We don't form cliques. You know, you and I can walk away from God's love, but we can never keep Him from loving us. And so it is. Somebody could walk out of this building who read, regularly attended here. They could walk away from your love, but you, they can't stop you from loving them. That love can follow them wherever they go. Jesus, John 13, 1, it said, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of the world unto the Father, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them, what? Unto the end. That even meant Judas. Amazing. Totally amazing. Unto the end. How does it work? 1 Peter 4, 8 says, Above all things, have fervent charity among yourselves, for charity shall cover the multitude of sins. Cover the multitude of sins. Now, I don't think this is talking about covering up sins that need to be confessed before God. I don't think that's what it's talking about. But I think deep within our heart should be such a love for our brother that rather than going about and gossiping about so-and-so, do you know what so-and-so did? We should in our heart, as much as it's right, as much as it's right, we should have a heart to cover over their sins instead of spreading them around. Now, there's a time that sins have to be made public. But there are so many things that don't have to be made public. There are so many things that don't have to be made public. True love to another makes us kind to his imperfections, charitable toward his faults, and often blind even to the existence of faults. We would not see the imperfections of those whom we love and our attachment for what we esteem. Their real excellencies makes us insensible to their errors. Now let me just give you one illustration of what I'm talking about. Actually, my son-in-law said his grandfather used to say this verse this way, for charity shall cover the multitude of oddities. Charity shall cover the multitude of imperfections. Now, as you all know, I'm a dairy farmer. And um, it's a little bit of a challenge sometimes to get all of the cow smell off. It's a little bit of a challenge. Sometimes I can be in too much of a hurry and not do a good enough job. But anyhow... Over the years, you know, different ones, there was this one brother who talked about it. And I asked some others, and they didn't think they've ever smelled it on me. But this brother kind of, he just, he just kind of, was, I don't know, he found some fun in it. So you know what he did? He had the audacity to when he would greet me, that just before, right after he gives the kiss, he takes a big, <laughs> smells. That was so offensive to me. It just ate me up. And so I said, sometime I'm going to have to tell him that this is just, this is plain down rude. And then he'd do it again. And this went on. And this went on a number of times. And this was eating me up. And then one day, you know, I said, you know what? It doesn't really matter. What's wrong with that anyhow? Now, was it kind? No, it wasn't. 
Should he be corrected so maybe somebody else doesn't get hurt? Maybe so. But as far as I'm concerned, I decided I'm going to cover over it. I'm just going to forget it. And guess what happened? I don't know how it worked. Was it coincidence? He stopped doing it. Cover a multitude of imperfections. We're not talking about covering sin. Sin needs to be dealt with and those kind of things. You know what I'm talking about. There are so many things people do. They can be so unkind. They can be so rude. They don't know how to say things right. You know what? It doesn't really matter, does it? If I'm so spiritual, I should be the first one to just leave them go. I can accept it. You know what really bothers me though? When I hear a husband going around and talking about the faults of his wife. Brother, don't do it. It's not kind. You know when a person comes to you and talks about the faults of someone else? You can pretty well guess that they'll probably talk about your faults too. Gossip is such a terrible sin. Such a terrible sin. Now, sometimes we call gossip gossip when it's not gossip. Or we call, call people sharing information gossip when it's not. There is a time to share your concern. Like, I'll have many times, I'll have someone come to me, so-and-so did such-and-such, and they're offended, and they want to go and talk to them. But they'll come to me first and say, do I have a legitimate reason to feel this way? And how should I go about to talk to that person? Now, I don't believe that's gossip. They're trying to get help. They went to somebody that they think can help them out. They're not just going to share information to make someone look bad or make themselves look good. And so sometimes a person gets offended uh, because the person should have came to them, not went to someone else. And then there's a time, and I've just done it, where a brother offended a sister in a way that was inappropriate. And the sister comes to me and tells me about it. And I say, well, you know, normally the right thing is for you to go and talk to the person yourself. But in this case, because of the nature of it, I will do it for you. And I will tell that gentleman it was right for her to come to you. But because of the nature of it, I came to you. We can build trust that way. But when we're going around other people's backs and we're talking about this and that and it comes around to the person. I just had a young man come to me and he was very hurt because somebody told so-and-so and that so-and-so told him that they had a certain concern about his life. He said, what do I do now? I said, well... That's easy to do. You go back to the person who came to you. Tell that person to go back to the person that came to them and tell them, if you have a problem with me, come to me yourself. I want to hear it from you. So important. If we're going to have trust in the brotherhood. We're not covering over sin. If I'm living in sin, it would be very, very good for my wife to get help. We're not covering over sin. But that is different than telling others that have no interest in it. One of the things when folks come and want to be a member at our church, one of the many things that I tell them is that they are responsible. They are required 
to use as we know it, Matthew 18. Somebody sins against you. You have a responsibility to go and clear it up. It's not the deacon's job. It's not the pastor's job. It's your job. That's your responsibility. Now, if you do and you can't get through, then you need to get some others to come alongside of you. Another thing that is very tempting, you may have a personal problem with someone, and so you go to that person, and to bring along a lot of ammunition for your situation, you will go to them and say, I have this concern about you, and a lot of other people do too. Or, I have this concern about you, and some others do also. We use it as ammunition. That doesn't work. In other words, if you have a problem, you need to address that problem. But when you go and say everyone else do what ha- does, then what happens is all of a sudden they say, oh, everybody has a problem with me? Trust becomes broken. Another thing very important is to be able to absorb another fault, another's faults. Why do we get offended so easily? Psalms 119, 165 says, Great peace have they which love thy law, and nothing shall offend them. I'm amazed how easily people get offended. You know, it's okay to swallow hard. It's okay to swallow hard and let them go. It's okay. I will absorb the hurt. Actually, 1 Corinthians 6, 7 says, Now therefore there's utterly unfold among you, because you go to law one with another. Why do you not rather take wrong? Why do you not rather suffer yourselves to be defrauded? You know, by the way, one of the, one of the baptisms that all of us need to be baptized with is the baptism of suffering. That is such a part of the gospel, to suffer. But who likes to suffer? Do you like to suffer? I don't like to suffer. I'll do everything I can. I pop the pills, the aspirins. I don't like to suffer. But it's okay to suffer. Actually, it's part of the Christian life. To a point where um, Peter said, arm yourselves with the same mind. Even as Christ. Just prepare yourselves to suffer. That would go so far instead of all these issues we have between each other. Actually, suffering as a Christian gives you an opportunity that you can praise God in a way that you can in any other way. In the middle of suffering, if you can sing a song and praise the Lord, that song will be sweeter than if it's sung on a sunny day. So, next time you have to suffer, praise God. The Bible says, leap for joy, for great is your reward in heaven. Start singing a song. And it'll be sweeter than when you're happy. It's really important to hand out affirmations. We just don't do enough of that. There was a brother, just before I came, there was a brother who was really, really under the weather, I could tell it. 
And I knew why, and I, I knew what he was struggling with. And I couldn't help that situation. But I called him and I said, you know, brother, and I started giving an affirmation. I really appreciate you. You're such an asset to the church. You, got, you, you do so well in this area, in that area, in the other area. I couldn't say about this one area, but there's so many areas I could. You know what he said to me? He said, this phone call was a million dollar phone call. How long did it take and what did it cost? Practically nothing. We can go around handing out affirmations. Brother, I appreciate you. You're such an asset. I really appreciate this about you. I mean, this happens so often that we have to hand out reprimands, you know, or challenges or exhortations. But let's just make, let's just zero in on this one. Sisters to sisters, brothers to brothers, I appreciate you. I, I, I respect you. I like this about your life. I just, I, I just saw what you did over here yesterday. I really appreciated that. I'm glad to be your brother. I'm glad to be your sister. You'd be surprised what that would do to a congregation. Everybody would start doing that. Affirmations. Another thing we need to talk about is assumptions. Assumptions really destroy trust in any relationships. Assumptions. Maybe there's some of you that are sitting here today. Well, maybe not. I don't know you that well. But, you know how it goes for preachers? Oh, Leonard's preaching this message. I know why he's preaching. Because Brother Elvin told him about this situation. Maybe? Maybe not. Maybe not. So-and-so avoided me. They must have a problem with me. Really? Maybe not. So-and-so was standing with a group of others and they were talking and they kept glancing my way. I know they were talking about me. Maybe. Maybe not. Maybe not. I hear it so often. I mean, it's silly. It's silly, the things people will assume. I mean, some people are so good at figuring out what the other person's thinking. Maybe, but maybe not. This has done so much damage. So much damage in relationships. We have to be so careful in this one. Assuming. There was a lady in the airport and she had to wait on her plane and she, so she bought this small pack of Oreo crack, uh, cookies. She went over, she sat down in the lounge and she got her paper and she reading her paper. Between her and the next person, which was a well-dressed man, there was an empty seat or there was a table or something in the seat. And so as she's there reading the paper, all of a sudden she hears a, something rattling and she just glances down her. There's her Oreo cookies and he's opening them up. Can't believe it. So she keeps her nose in her paper until she hears that he took a cookie. So she says, that ain't right. So she reached over and took a cookie herself. So she eats the cookie. So she's reading her paper. And here, he has the audacity to take the second one. 
So she reaches over and she takes a cookie. And then, adding insult to injury, he took the last cookie. He broke it in half, gave her half of it, and he ate the other, got up and left. She was fuming. She was so angry. And as she dug into her pocketbook to get her ticket, her, her, yeah, her ticket, here was her pack of cookies. So it wasn't her cookies at all. But we do it. We do it all the time. We assume. And people get so hurt. So hurt. Assumptions are so, so dangerous. Be very careful. Be very, make a commitment. You're not going to assume. And if you really need to know what they were thinking, go ask them. Just go ask them. We have to be careful with judging another's motives. We are to judge, but we're to judge righteous judgment. We must be so careful. Rather than falsely assuming or accusing that she or he did it with this motive in mind, it'd be much better to ask if we really need to know. Communication is so important. If we can have that respect and honor and love and fellowship and relationship, we need to be asking. When I went to school, actually, I must say it this way, I'm still colorblind. Not near so bad as I used to be. I couldn't tell orange and red apart. I couldn't tell brown and green apart. And in school, we made these mottos, plaster mottos. I think it was over Easter time. We were supposed to give them to our mothers and had a cross on it, some other things on it. So we made them. And of course, I painted my cross brown. The next art class, the paint was all out again, and I thought, I want to patch up my cross. So I patched it up, and as I was patching up, thoughts, well, something don't look quite right, but I'll just, I did the whole thing. Well, didn't take long for somebody to run up to the teacher and say, let her paint his cross green. And of course, teacher asked me to stand for recess. And I was reprimanded. I didn't tell the teacher how it happened. I didn't tell anybody I was colorblind. I just very patiently took it. I don't even remember that I was ever offended. But neither did the teacher really question me. Why did you do it? What was the reason? Now maybe there's a possibility I've broken trust. Actually, there's a good possibility I've broken trust. I mean, that was the same grade and I see uh, there's a, a lady here whose sister was in my grade. She might have her own set of stories. But that was the same grade where I used to see how often I could stand up and walk around my desk and sit down and stand up and walk around my desk and sit down. So there's a good possibility I've broken trust. And so the teacher figured that I just did it to be foolish. But it is important to... Consider before we judge a person's motives. Why did they do it? I don't know why they didn't do it. But I'm not going to assume that they did it for this reason. If I need to know, I will go ask. There is room for believing the best in another. There is room for that. 
believing the best. Now, there's some people who actually believe the best actually to a fault. But I think we need... I believe that Elvin has my best in mind. I really believe that. I believe all of you here have my best in mind. Is there somebody here who might not? I don't know. I'm going to give that benefit. I believe you. It'll go a long ways when we go to approach each other and challenge each other or exhort each other. It'll go a long ways. I believe you have my best in mind. To look suspicious at everyone will never work to bring peaceful, happy relationships. And yet, there's times where people have been hurt over and over and over again. And they've got themselves into a rut that they just expect everyone's out to take advantage of me. That's a bad place to be. And we need to help those people find themselves way out of that rut. But really, in a congregation like this, we should be really assuming the best and believing the best. The other thing, and I won't spend much time on it, is, is true forgiveness. True forgiveness goes so far when it comes to trust. True forgiveness from the bottom of the heart. A full release. You know, you say, well, maybe they'll do it again. Well, you know, it's all right to suffer. It's all right to suffer. But true forgiveness. Someone just told me that forgiveness is a lifestyle. Forgiveness is a lifestyle. In other words, we carry it, that's just part of our life, forgiveness. Forgiveness. Now, we're not saying covering over issues and sin that needs to be dealt with. That's not what I'm talking about. But forgiveness is a lifestyle. In closing, I'd like to take us to 2 Corinthians. And chapter 6. Paul appealing to the Corinthians. Here in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11, it says, O ye Corinthians, our mouth is open unto you, our heart is enlarged. What's he saying? We have spoken freely. Our heart is wide open to you. You are not straitened in us, or you are not restricted by us, but you are restricted or straitened in your own bowels or affections. Now, for a recompense in the same, I speak as unto my children, be ye also enlarged. Here's one for every single person in this congregation. Paul is saying, you know, my heart is open to you. Could we go to everyone and say that to them? My heart is, my heart is big enough. My heart is enlarged. It's large enough to take you just the way you are. I can love you. I will let you into my heart. His appeal was, heart isn't big enough to accept us. It's not my problem. The problem is yours. And his appeal was, open up your heart to me. And if everybody could enlarge their hearts to accept the other person, what a beautiful thing that would be. Yep, me, just the way I am. I don't always say things right. I don't always know how to do things perfect. I have my own issues. I've got my limitations. Would you open your heart far enough to accept me? Would your heart be enlarged enough 
to allow me into your heart. We'd all carry that around. How different that would be. How different. Children, parents, both of you need enlarged hearts. Open up your heart. I was sitting with a young man. Struggling. He said, I want a relationship with my dad. He said, but son, I appeal to your heart. Son, dad's heart is enlarged. Would you enlarge your heart to accept your dad? He's just not perfect, that's right. But could you open up your heart wide enough to accept it? Fathers to sons, sons to fathers, mothers to daughters, daughters to mother. The appeal to enlarge the heart. Parishioners to the pastor, pastor to the parishioners. Enlarge the heart. Alvin and Larry, Earl, they're not perfect. Appeal is. Brothers, enlarge your heart. Congregation, enlarge your heart towards them. What a beautiful relationship we could have then. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, as we come to the end of this service, this sermon, we just ask, Lord, realizing that trust is such an important ingredient when it comes to relationships, so important. Some of us have violated trust. Some of us have closed our hearts and won't let anyone else in. Some of us have refused to truly forgive from the bottom of our hearts. We've been assuming. We've been believing things that might not be true. I pray, Father, that each one of us here tonight could enlarge our hearts towards each other so that you could make our relationships here just as beautiful as the honeybees as they work in the hive. Oh, God, I pray that we could be a glory and an honor to your name. So I pray, Father, as however this fits to this congregation, I don't know them, you know them. However it fits to this congregation, maybe they don't even need it. However you choose to use it, use it for your glory and honor and make this congregation a testimony of your grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.